So last week uh, in this uh, continuing series of sermons through Paul's letter to the Romans, we took a crack at a difficult passage, a passage that um, says that governments take their authority and legitimacy from God rather than from the people who are governed. And for some of us, that sounded like a really un-American idea. The idea enshrined in the Declaration of Independence comes from that that, uh, governments derive their right to rule from the consent of the governed. That idea comes from the English philosopher John Locke, who first published that idea in 1688 in a little book called The Second Treatise on Government, a little book that Thomas Jefferson had written before he wrote the American Declaration of Independence, a, a little book that many of us read while we were in college, Now this week we're going to continue to move through the book of Romans and we're going to continue to move through some uh, difficult political uh, territory. I'm hoping all of you will be here by the time this sermon is over. You'll see how difficult it is. Uh, We continue to listen to what God's word says about governments and how Christians should interact with their government. So let me begin uh, by reading for you uh, our passage for the morning from Romans chapter 13. I will read uh, verse 3 through verse 7. It should magically appear on this screen. <clears throat> Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, uh, we ask this morning that you would be present uh, in the preaching of your word. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit... We would hear uh, what it is uh, that we need to know this day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so according to this passage that we just read, the ruler or the magistrate or the governor or the government has two functions. First, he is God's servant for our good. He approves those who do good. And second, he is God's servant and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The ruler promotes the good, and he avenges evil. This morning, I want to talk about these two functions in reverse order, because Paul spends a lot more time talking about avenging evil than about promoting good. So, let me begin with a discussion uh, about what Paul means when he says that the ruler is a servant of God. Two times in 
Verse 4, Paul calls the ruler a servant of God. And the word that he uses in Greek is diakonos, which is the same as the word deacon in English. And so Paul is telling us that the ruler is God's deacon. We could also use the word minister because the word minister and deacon are closely allied. In many countries, like the United Kingdom, departments within the government are called ministries. And the head of those departments are called ministers. The head of the entire government is called the prime minister. This word minister very much gets at this idea of diakonos. The ruler is God's minister, God's deacon, God's servant. And he does two things in the name of God. He rewards good and he avenges evil. Now let me talk a little bit about the second job. No, actually let me talk a lot about the second job first. The ruler avenges evil. The ruler carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer is what Paul says. Vengeance is repaying evil for evil. Vengeance is hurting the person who causes hurt. Vengeance is wounding the person who wounds. Vengeance is killing the person who kills. Vengeance is an eye for an eye. Vengeance is repaying evil for evil. And that's the job of the ruler according to Romans 13.4. Now, this raises a very complicated question and a question that we often um, get wrong. The answer, we get the answer to this question wrong. Scripture is crystal clear that as Christians we are not to seek vengeance. We all recall Jesus' words on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. A very familiar passage. A couple of weeks ago, we read this passage from Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's clear that vengeance is not part of the Christian lifestyle. That vengeance is not okay for followers of Jesus Christ. What then do we say about the Christian ruler or a Christian government? If it is true that vengeance is not the Christian way, does it follow that a Christian government should also not seek vengeance? Does it follow that a Christian government should not repay evil for evil? Does it follow that a Christian government should turn the other cheek? Think about that for a minute. As it turns out, the answer to each of those three questions is no That does not follow. What is true of the Christian individual turns out to not be true of the Christian state or, in fact, of any just government. What is true of the Christian individual is not true of the Christian state. Now, this is a little complicated, and I think it seems contrary to our instincts, so uh, please follow carefully what I need to say right now. 
both in Scripture and in secular, are not the same as the rights and the duties of the state, even though a state is nothing more than a conglomeration of individuals. Most secular political philosophers imagine what they call the state of nature, a hypothetical time before people had governments. In the state of nature, each person was sovereign. Each person was a little king unto himself, and each person did whatever he wanted to do without constraint, much like animals living in the wild. And that means that in the state of nature, each person can steal and rape and kill as he sees fit because there is no government over him to tell him otherwise because there's no government or law to restrain him. In several places, in the book of Judges, we see a description precisely of this kind of lawlessness which reigned for a time in Israel. We read, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Okay, this is a description of the so-called state of nature. But when people enter into a society and under a government, each individual person gives up some of his absolute rights as a little king, and he concedes those rights to this new government. As a person who lives in a law-governed society, I no longer have the right of retribution. I no longer have the right to avenge myself. If someone were to injure me or to kill a member of my family, I no longer have the right to injure or to kill that person. Though, when I was in the so-called state of nature, I did have that right. That right however, now belongs to the state or to the government. What happens when we have a government is that we give up the power of the sword. We give up the power of vengeance. And we hand that power over to the ruler, to the governor. As civilized people, we leave the enforcement of the law to government and we do not take the law into our own hands. Uncivilized people which we might see today in mafias or street gangs or lynch mobs or vigilante groups, uncivilized people do take the law into their own hands. If you hurt them, sure enough, they're going to hurt you back. What Scripture says is that as individual Christians, we should not exact vengeance. Romans 12, we read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And now, in chapter 13, we see that God uses the ruler, the government, the magistrate, to exact his vengeance. For the ruler is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The Bible never says that there will be no vengeance for wrongdoing. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible makes it very clear that there will be a repaying for wrongdoing. and But that repaying is left to God and it's also left to his servants, his deacons, and his rulers. For this reason, it is a mistake to say that it is unbiblical for a government to use deadly force in the execution of its laws internally or in the conduct of just war against an external aggressor. 
And I want to repeat this because there are plenty of well-meaning, peace-minded Christians who take a different view on this. Yes, it is true that Christians are forbidden by the word of God from exacting revenge. That means we do not strike back when struck. That means we do not participate in lynch mobs or vigilante groups. That means we don't look for revenge or for payback. But rather than striking back ourselves, what the Bible tells us to do is to leave that vengeance to the wrath of God. And the Bible tells us God will repay. And the Bible tells us that God uses rulers to avenge and to carry out his wrath on wrongdoers. Here's what the Reformed scholar John Stott says about this. We human beings as private individuals are not authorized to take the law into our own hands and punish offenders. The punishment of evil is God's prerogative. And during the present age, he exercises that prerogative through the law courts. It's clear that the Bible teaches that we are to never avenge ourselves. But why? If wrongdoers should be punished, if wrongdoers will be punished, why shouldn't they be punished by the person that they hurt? Well, one reason is that none of us are very good at making fair judgments in cases that involve ourselves. And if we were to avenge ourselves, we would make ourselves into both judge and jury. Even in law courts, a person injured does not pass judgment in his own case, because our judgment cannot be trusted. If a magistrate happened to have been the victim of a crime, that magistrate would never preside over the trial uh, in the case involving himself. So from this, we can take a general rule that when we understand ourselves to have been the victim of some wrong... We need to lay aside our right to judge and leave that judgment to people who can be more objective than we can be. We are not to be trusted in making judgments in cases involving ourselves. Scripture tells us that we're to never avenge ourselves, but to leave that vengeance to the wrath of God. In normal cases, in most circumstances, this side of eternity, that wrath of God will be executed by the state, the police Arrest the guilty party, the court pronounces a judgment, the penal system makes the guilty party pay. That's very different from vigilante justice. That's very different from a lynch mob. That leaves the settling of scores to the wrath of God and our rulers, the magistrate, the state, bears the sword as a minister, as a deacon, as a servant of the wrath of God. All right, so one more thing I need to clarify. When Paul writes about the ruler, the servant, or the deacon, or the minister of God, and says about him that he does not bear the sword in vain, we need to be clear that Paul is talking about the power to kill. The sword of the ruler is not a ceremonial sword. It is a sword with the power to end human life. It is a sword that compels compliance and obedience on the pains of death. And this is a very sober truth. 
I have burned into my memory the image of federal agents in combat gear seizing the seven-year-old Elian Gonzalez. Can we take a look at that picture? Maybe you remember this picture. Maybe you remember the complicated and heart-wrenching case that led to this picture. In 1999, Elian, the boy who's being held here in the picture, and his mother got into a little boat and they tried to go from Cuba to Florida. But the boat sinks along the way and Elian's mother dies along with ten other people. Elian survives along with two other people. They're picked up by fishermen and then the Coast Guard brings them to the United States. Elian's father and mother had been divorced before this boat trip and Elian's father continued to live in Cuba and he asked U.S. officials to return his son to him. And then a complicated legal battle ensued with Elian's relatives in the United States trying to keep the boy here. Finally, the federal courts decided in favor of the father and demanded the return of the boy to Cuba. And when Elian's relatives did not comply with what the court ordered, Janet Reno, who was the attorney general in uh, President Bill Clinton's administration, ultimately had to make the decision to send in a SWAT team of heavily armed INS agents to recover this child. And this photo, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001, we see the sword of the state. And it's a fearsome image. It's a sobering image. But ultimately, the state wields a sword to ensure that the demands of the state are obeyed. Most of us usually never think about it. We hardly notice the police walking past us with guns safely holstered on their hips. But may we never forget the purpose of those guns, to enforce the will of the state, even upon pain of death. In 2018, 1,168 people were killed in the United States by the police, by the police using the sword of the state. Now, I don't pretend to know what happened in each of those cases, but it's reasonable to assume that in many of those cases, the person killed had refused to comply with the demands of the state, refused to obey the police officer, resisted in a way that escalated to deadly force. It's a sober truth. Now, another use of the sword of the state is the death penalty. In our reading from Genesis chapter 9, we see the divine institution of the death penalty. We read, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, this is not a Jewish law. This is not part of the law of Moses that was received at Mount Sinai. In fact, this is part of God's covenant with Noah, a covenant uh, which is older than the law of Moses, a covenant that was made with all mankind. And the principle is very simple. Because humans bear the image of God, God will demand a reckoning for the killing of any human. And fellow humans most often will be the ones doing the reckoning. In other words, fellow humans will, in most cases, be the avenging sword of God's wrath when a human is murdered. We call that capital punishment, and it happens by the sword of the state, which is not the same thing as a blood feud or a lynch mob 
or a personal vendetta. Rather, the ruler of the state, acting as the servant of God, is the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This verse from Genesis 9 is a fearsome and daunting warning, and it is a fearsome and daunting in its threat to kill. But what it affirms is the extremely high value of each and every human life. Human life is to be valued above everything else in this world because human life is in the image of God himself. In 1995, uh, Pope John Paul II issued a pastoral letter called uh, The Gospel of Life in which the pontiff criticized what he called the culture of death now pervading rich Western nations. According to the Pope, this culture of death is motivated by a desire for control. It's motivated by a desire for wealth. It's motivated by a desire for efficiency. And in the name of all of those things, rich Western nations permit the killing of the very young and the very old and the very feeble. The Pope writes, To claim the right to abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, and to recognize that right in law means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. And I would add that it is also to claim that we are God or God's which is the original sin, the sin of Satan, the sin above all sins. Okay, what are some takeaways from Paul's discussion of rulers and the sword of vengeance they carry? I will suggest three. First takeaway, I should recognize that I am not the king of the universe, but that God is, and that God has this vengeance thing, which is really just a justice thing, under his control. Exacting justice is God's job. It's not my job. Sure, we all think that we know what would be the most just thing to do in any situation, which is why we have armies of self-appointed justice warriors running around doing justice. Certainly, as Christians, we are always called to act justly, to do the right thing, to never cheat, to always be fair, to protect life, to defend the weak and the powerless. That's what every Christian is called to do. We are called to be just. The problem, however, arises when we move from being just to being justice. Being just means following God's law. But being justice means thinking that I am God and that I get to exact revenge on those whom I take to be less just than me, which is not a good idea for several reasons. Well, first, because I'm not God. Second, because I'm probably not smart enough or as objective as God in making a judgment, particularly if I see myself as a victim of injustice. And third, well, go back to number one, I'm not God. So our first takeaway I should recognize that I am not the king of the universe. Second takeaway. I should enjoy the relief that comes from knowing that I do not have to judge the universe. And I do not have to police the world. 
and I do not have to avenge every wrong. That's not my job. It's God's job. Now, I realize that some of us think that God is not doing a very good job. That maybe he needs some pointers. That maybe he could use some extra manpower. Maybe you've heard the phrase, being the hands and the feet of God. We need to be very careful when we use that phrase. We need to be careful that we don't really mean being the sword of God. Which is probably what we want to do. Yes, we must always act justly. Yes, we must always do the right thing. Yes, we must always follow God's law. But no, unless I'm a magistrate, it is not my job to exact revenge on the person whom I believe is behaving badly. Third takeaway. Because I happen to live under a government that does allow civic participation, I should enjoy that opportunity and take part. Governments are God's ministers to approve the good and to avenge the bad. As a Christian, I should jump in on that and take part in that. If I'm concerned about excess force being used in policing, I should become a policeman. What better solution than to have a police force filled with born-again believers? If I don't like the laws of the land, then I should think about becoming a legislator or getting involved in the legislative process as a private citizen. How nice it would be if every law passed were examined in light of the Word of God. Okay, just one final comment before I close. I said about 25 minutes ago that The ruler promotes good and avenges evil and that Paul spends a lot more time talking about the avenging evil part than about the promoting good part. And so most of our discussion this morning has been about avenging evil and the sword of the state. What if, as Christian citizens, what if we were to think really hard about how... The state could do a better job of promoting the good rather than just avenging evil. Yes, we want the state to avenge evil. Crime must be punished in any civil society. But what if we were to use our intelligence and our creativity to think about how we could do a better job of encouraging people to do the right thing? We can think about that in our communities and in our churches and in our schools. We can think about that in our families and in our marriages. Rather than punishing people who do wrong, what would happen if we spent more time and energy encouraging people to do the right? I think that's something to think about as we leave this place this morning. The Word of God, let us pray. Father God Almighty, we bow before you. And uh, we thank you for the magistrates that you've put over us. And uh, we thank you for this word from Brother Paul about how the magistrate acts on your behalf. Lord, I pray that we would um, be served in this community and in this nation by magistrates um, who seek to do good and seek to prevent evil. We pray that um, those who govern us might uh, be motivated by a desire for justice and fairness and by 
the will of God. Lord, I pray that as Christian citizens that we might uh, respect and honor those people who have been put in authority over us, that we might support their good work, that we might participate in the systems uh, that have been granted to us in this country. Um, And I pray that we might experience a more just and more fair, more sane and more peaceful society um, by living as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.